0: Well, good morning. I'm going to rudely cut you off, and that's because uh, we this morning have a treat, and one of the things that I, as lead pastor here, have kind of carried the mantle of responsibility is is the teaching role, and as I hear different teachers throughout uh, my journey and my spiritual journey, there are some that come upon me and just impact me in such a way I think, gosh, I want to share this with our church. Now, several weeks ago, I heard John Dixon at the Global Leadership Summit. Uh, I, we had it simulcasted here, and uh, he did a brilliant message uh, on humility. Now, John, the challenge was, is from Australia. And to try to figure out how, do we, how could I leverage to get him here, and I said, I know, I'll, I'll ask him to speak at the chapel of the Green Bay Packers. Because if I pretty much email anybody in the country, and the world for that matter, right, I say, will you come? And speak to the Green Bay Packers. And people pay their way. Doesn't even matter, right? <laughs> John has never heard or seen an NFL football game in his entire life. This had, yeah, this is shocking, isn't it? So this had no, zero impact on him personally. I'm going to let him share what actually happened and got him here. And so uh, when he so kindly agreed to come to do that for the Packers, he said, oh, yeah, by the way, small little fellowship. Of community church would love to hear you too, and so uh, he's going to be so kind to share with us this morning. John uh, is a PhD in ancient history, uh, has done television shows, has written several books. Uh, again, to have someone come and take our stage this morning to to share his heart, what a powerful privilege it is for us. Now, I want to say, apart from his his resume. There's one thing I always look for uh, in someone that I'm going to get next to and, and let be up here, and it's the character of a person. And I have to just tell you, watching him teach, watching him father his son, who he brought here, who, by the way, is a crazy fan of the NFL, um, <laughs> he is s- such a good man, and I've loved just getting to know him. And so will you give him a, wel- a warm community welcome this morning, John Dixon, would you. <clears throat> All right, brother. <laughs> what a pack of lies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> apart from me not knowing anything about the NFL. Uh, that's true. Uh, I had to, um, with the last service, 815, uh, my strategy was to start the sermon really slowly until you can follow the accent, because uh, I know you you have a funny accent, so it's hard for you to follow mine. Uh, and uh, and then halfway through the sermon, you'll have attuned your ear to my accent, and then I'll pick up to Australian speed. Sound okay? And then if I start to see a few of you go, then I'll slow it back down, and uh, we'll try and pick it up again, okay? Uh, whenever I come to America... I'm struck by how similar our countries are and how weirdly different our countries are. Similar, I mean, a lot of our cultural things are exactly the same in Australia. Uh, Half of our TV is American TV. Uh, But um, when I think about the origins of our two countries, uh, you, you could hardly have more polar opposites. Your country founded by people with a deep Christian faith. Right From the little I know of American history, deep faith, they came here for freedom, for uh, uh, ability to express a new way of being Christian without certain constraints, to find a new land, a kind of promised land, as it were. But when you compare that with Australia, I don't know if you know anything about Australian history. You don't. You shouldn't. Don't worry. It's boring as anything, right? We just came and we went to the beach. That's basically Australian history, right? (laughs) But uh, we were started as a penal colony. Uh, You went seeking freedom, we went there being locked up because the prisons in Britain were overflowing. They thought, let's send them as far away from England as we possibly can. We've heard about this little place down under. Let's go send them there. And this is literally how our nation began, with a bunch of convicts. Now, I know you're thinking, that explains the Australians I've met, you know, that they all come from convicts. But the thing is, our uh, faith perspective is influenced by that because, of course, Christianity was not very popular amongst the convicts, especially as the, you know, church tried to impose itself. They had one chaplain for this colony and, uh, they, and the convicts hated being forced to go to church. And they were forced to go to church and put up with long sermons. Our first chaplain, Richard Johnson, he was a good guy, a Bible-believing guy. But uh, the, the convicts just hated him. In fact, so did the government because um, the government would not let him build a church. He had to do it in the, in the open air. Uh, and uh, when they eventually uh, let him build an actual church building about eight years into uh, Australia's uh, history, it was burnt down within five under mysterious circumstances. And Australians like to think of that as their approach to Christianity, basically. We, we lay claim to being the first nation, probably, in world history to have burnt down its first and only church. Uh, it's, uh, it's influenced our culture. So that today, in Australia, we have eight percent church attendance. That includes all denominations, and it, uh, in, it includes even those who go only once a month. That's not even every week. They're once a month, 8%. You guys, I don't know, something like five or six times that amount. So, can you see how, how, how we come at it from a different sort of perspective? I often get the impression that, you know, Americans, it's like they're preaching in Jerusalem. And Australians, we're preaching in Athens. And it kind of affects, you know, how you think about the faith and, and how you communicate it. Um, but the thing is this. What we believe at core is the same. The heart of the faith, the real center of Christianity remains the same in America, in Australia, in China, in Africa, the real center. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I think we've got a great Bible passage to do that from. But as I begin, let me tell you an entirely untrue story. That is the only untrue thing I will say today. Four people in a plane that lost all power to its engines started careering toward the earth. And the pilot came out uh, to the passengers and said, look, we've got a problem, four of us, only three parachutes, my plane, my parachutes. I've got to take one. He straps it on, jumps out to safety. Left on the plane are a brilliant professor, a pastor and a backpacker making our way around the world. And the professor says, I am one of the greatest minds in the world. I didn't mean to do that with an English accent. I always do that. Anyway, um, it's that convict in me, you know. I'm one of the greatest minds in the world. I have to take one of the last parachutes. The others agree. He straps it on, jumps out. The pastor starts to explain to the backpacker, look, I've lived a long life. I know where I'm going when we go down. You take the last parachute. Backpacker stops him and she says, no, it's okay. That brilliant professor. He just jumped out with my backpack strapped on. <laughs> now, that's, an, that's not true, okay? It didn't happen, so far as I know. But it illustrates something that is really true. It's possible to assume you have the real thing, when in fact, you have a poor substitute. Now, that's a particular problem, jumping out of an aircraft with a Ph.D. and a backpack. (laughs) It's also a problem when it comes to the Christian faith. Plenty of people assume they've embraced the real thing, got the uh, parachute strapped on. But on closer inspection, halfway through life, maybe near death, realize it's a backpack. Equally, it's possible to have rejected what you assumed was real Christianity. But on closer inspection, you yourself admit you rejected a poor substitute, not the real thing. And we've got plenty of people like that in Australia who have rejected what they think is Christianity, but it's not Christianity. I find this to be particularly the case with the very famous atheists of our world at the moment. I don't know if you know much about Richard Dawkins, how big he is here in, uh, in America, but uh, in the UK and in Australia, this is a very famous atheist, and his book has been uh, number one on the bestseller lists uh, right around the world, The God Delusion, in which it's a fierce attack on Christianity, in particular, and religion in general. But what is so amazing is I read Richard Dawkins, who in every other respect, is a brilliant man, a biologist from Oxford University. But when I read his account of Christianity, when I see how he demolishes Christianity, I don't recognise the Christianity he's talking about. He has assumed it's real Christianity, and he does away with it, but it's not real Christianity. And I've got a theory as to why this is. In the book, he admits something that he kind of wears like a badge but to me it explains a lot. He says in the book that he threw away Christianity before he was a teenager. And it's like a a showing off. You know, I was such a bright kid, I could see through Christianity by the time I was 12. But as soon as I read that, I thought, that explains it. That explains why I don't recognize Christianity in this book. Because the Christianity he demolishes is the Christianity frozen in the mind of a 12-year-old and never studied seriously since. He has rejected what he assumes is real Christianity, but I do not recognize it. And I reckon there are a lot of people in Australia, I have no idea whether it's true in America, who do exactly the same thing. They reckon they knew about Christianity when they were young, and now that they're old and they face the complexities of life. They face the big philosophical questions that confront you when you reach your adult years. And they look back on that childish faith and they say, the childish faith doesn't match. It, it, it can't stand up to my my adult questioning. And they, they just reject it. So, you know what I want to do today? I want to do a safety check. I want us to check if we've got a backpack or a parachute on. I want us to kind of clear away every assumption and go back to a beautiful text of Scripture that I think contains the three core realities of the Christian faith. Picture the scene from the Bible reading today. Three crucified men who are naked, unlike in Renaissance paintings, bleeding, dying. A crowd is gathered. All the attention is on the man in the middle. And out of this sort of brutal, ugly, bloody situation emerge the three core realities of the Christian faith. And the first has to do with the identity of the man in the middle. We read in verse 35, Luke 23, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God. The soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Then down in verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Do you see how everything in this climactic passage of Luke's gospel focuses on who is Jesus? And they all reject him over one particular claim that was made about him. And it is so important for us to understand what the claim is. Because here, we understand the identity of Jesus better than any other angle. And it's important to do this because, at least in my country, and I suspect the same in your country, there are so many versions of Jesus, right? There's, you know, Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ film. Now, I know this is not the sort of uh, film you're allowed to put your hand up and say, yeah, I've watched that, okay, in church anyway, right? But yeah, I've watched that. But in this film, Jesus appears as this misunderstood, sexually repressed guy who doesn't really know if he's a prophet of God or what. It's, re- it's a really curious take on Jesus. Or there's the Mel Gibson Jesus, you know, who's just beaten up for 90 minutes and then he dies, right? The sacrificial lamb Jesus, and that's it, Right? Uh, There are those who love the left-wing Jesus. This is the lovely Jesus who wouldn't hurt a fly and loves little lammies, you know, wouldn't hurt anything. Equally popular, you know, is the right-wing Jesus who probably would hurt a number of things, uh, given the chance. (laughs) Am I allowed to say that in this church? Uh, Deepak Chopra. Uh, He's the guru to the stars. He's he's one of yours, right? Uh, He lives in America anyway. Uh, Oprah loves him. Right? So, there's an endorsement, if you've ever heard one. And uh, this guy is an Indian guru. Uh, and he's, he's brought a sort of pop Hinduism into America, and he's written lots of books, and, and people are loving the spirituality he's got. So, he tried his hand at writing a book on Jesus. And what's so interesting when you read his book on Jesus, Jesus appears like an enlarged Indian guru. He's, he's just a big Deepak Chopra. And there's a, there's a lesson here. It's possible to create Jesus in your own image. To kind of, you know, fashion Jesus. Because we all know Jesus must be spectacular. So he must be spectacular in the way I want him to be spectacular. Instead of listening to what our sources say about Jesus and his identity, and it is crystal clear, is it not, what this passage says about Jesus. He is the Christ Christ the Christ. It's a repeated phrase. So, it's important to understand what this is about. It's also important, I think, perhaps if there's anyone a little bit skeptical in the audience, that even non-Christian sources from the ancient world refer to Jesus as having gone by this name, Christ. Here's Tacitus, the greatest of the Roman historians from antiquity. Basically, if you know anything about the emperors, Nero, Caligula, and so on, you got it from Tacitus, probably via your ancient history teacher, but your ancient history teacher got it from Tacitus. But Tacitus, in passing, mentions Jesus. He says, Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Christ. Even a non-Christian writer can say this. The 1st century Jewish writer, Josephus, in this very important 1st century text, says about Jesus, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, a doer of baffling deeds. In in the original Greek, it's paradoxa erga, paradoxical works, uh, bizarre things. It's probably a neutral way of referring to Jesus' reputation as a healer. But look what it says, who was called Christ. So it is crucial for us to understand what Christ means. I, growing up without any Christianity in my life before I was 16, really honestly thought Christ was His surname. You know, like they say John Dixon, they say Troy Murphy, they say Jesus Christ, it's obvious, right? I honestly thought Mary and Joseph must have been Mr. and Mrs. Christ and there was Grandpa Christ, Grandma Christ, Christ Christ family tree. Someone then pointed out, I'm Australian, someone pointed out that it was a title. And I've since learnt a lot more about this important title. Each day, Orthodox Jews recite prayers for their long-awaited king. Have mercy, our God, on Jerusalem, your city, on the monarchy of the house of David, your Christ. Or in Hebrew, Mashiach, Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. It's a reference to the coronation ceremony of ancient Israelite kings. The new monarch was anointed with olive oil as a symbol of God's power being poured out on the individual. The model here was the shepherd turned warrior king named David. A thousand or so years before Jesus, David was selected, anointed, and ruled Israel for a generation. The Jewish scriptures, or what Christians call the Old Testament, promised that a descendant of David would one day rule all the nations. He'd be anointed not just with oil, but with the Spirit of God. He would speak and act for the Almighty. This deep Jewish longing for a Messiah descended from David helps us to appreciate the scandal at the heart of the Gospels. They claim Jesus was that anointed one. The Christ, he is the one to speak and act for God. The problem was, he didn't quite fit the job description. He puts it so much better than I can. The point is, the the point is, the Christ title was the most prestigious title you could throw around in first century Jerusalem. It meant the one who spoke and acted for God. The one they were hoping would rule God's kingdom forever. And the thing is, Jesus didn't fit the job description, as he said. Because Jesus came saying, love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute you. That meant Romans. The Jewish people in this time wanted the Messiah to come, the Christ to come, to conquer the world. And set up Jerusalem as the superpower over everything. And Jesus comes saying, love, humility compassion, mercy. And so this is the thing. They reject his claim to be ho Christos, the Christ with all of God's authority. But one man that day spotted Jesus' authority. Do you notice that in the scripture reading? Sure, the religious leaders, the soldiers, the criminal over here, they all reject Jesus' authority as the Christ. But then we hear that the criminal over this side Yells out, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Has he not spotted what everyone else rejected? That Jesus is the one with all the authority of God to rule the kingdom of God forever. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What everyone rejects this man accepts and it's hard to know how he worked it out because Jesus didn't look very kingly, naked, bleeding, dying and yet somehow this man saw in Jesus the Christ. Perhaps he'd heard the rumours, the rumours that actually made their way into non-Christian sources that Jesus could do baffling deeds. And maybe he thinks, this has to be the Christ. But here's my point. The first part of the safety check of the Christian faith is asking yourself whether you have recognized Jesus' greatness. Not as a guru, not as a teacher, not as a life model, as the one who speaks and acts for God, the Lord of God's kingdom. Have you? Realize Jesus' greatness. You know, I have um, friends in Sydney whose mates own a posh jewelry shop. And an American gentleman walked into this jewelry store and asked to buy a pink Argyle diamond worth about $20,000. And during the credit card transaction, the computer froze, and the woman behind the counter was all sort of disturbed, you know, what a time to have your computer freeze. And this American gentleman just leant over, asked a couple of questions, and offered a little bit of a shortcut key thing, and the computer came back to life. And she said, you know a little about computers, do you? He just nodded, took his diamond, and left. Only later, when the husband owner of the store came in and asked about how they'd gone that day and she told him about this American guy that bought a pink argyle diamond? Did they go through the credit card transactions and see who they'd actually sold this diamond to? You know who, right? Mr Bill Gates, who was in town for the big Microsoft conference in Sydney. She suddenly felt a little silly for having asked him if he knows a little about computers. When this is the guy who just about, you know, runs the non-Mac computer industry worldwide. Now, the reason I tell you this true story is because it reminds me of what a lot of Australians do, and maybe some Americans too. We do the same with Jesus. You know a little about life, do you, Jesus? When the reality is, he is Hoh He is the Lord of everything. He rules God's kingdom. He is the one with the yes or no to your eternal life. My question is, have you realized Jesus' greatness on His terms? That's the first part of the safety check. The second flows immediately from it. Have you admitted your unworthiness in His presence? Because that's what the passage says happens. This criminal next to Jesus, right? Like no one else that day, he spots that this is the one who rules God's kingdom. He's in the presence of unbelievable greatness. And look what he does. He admits he deserves to be there. Don't you fear God, he says to the criminal at the other side of Jesus. You're under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. Can you see what's going on here? I'm unworthy. This man is worthy. Greatness will do that. When you realize you're in the presence of greatness, you kind of freeze and have clarity about your place before greatness. Can you imagine how my son felt yesterday as we went down into the bowels of your oval down the road there? Uh, And... uh, bumped into this guy, and I now remember his name, Charles Woodson. <laughs> and uh, Troy goes, hi, Charles. And, you know, and, and my son, who kind of knows F- NFL, goes... Oh. <laughs> he's, and, he, he's, and he goes to Troy, is, it, is that Charles Woodson? And Troy goes, yeah. And he's like freaking out. And then, of course, when uh, Troy introduces Josh to uh, Charles Woodson, Josh is, like, tongue-tied, you know, sort of at one at the same time trying to be cool, but being an idiot, really? You know, uh, he's left the building. He's uh, gone to the match already. Uh, the game. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know, frankly, to my embarrassment, uh, I didn't recognise this guy. I called Aaron Rodgers Aaron Johnson yesterday. Um, (laughs) uh, But, um, in fact, when Troy invited me to come speak here, uh, he's right that I didn't know who the Green Bay Packers were. I'm now embarrassed about that. But here's the text I wrote to my son as soon as I got Troy's email. Josh, check your email. I've been invited to speak on humility to the Green Bay Packers team. Are they any good? (laughs) My son replies, what? You are kidding. No, no. They won the Super Bowl last season and are winning so far this season. Can I come with you, please? (laughs) I said, okay, (laughs) okay, I don't know if I'm going to be invited back. (laughs) (laughs) But try and forget the Packers, replace the greatness of the Packers, replace the experience of shaking the hand of those guys. And think of being in the presence of Jesus, friends. Or Christos, Lord of everything. Holiness, purity, humility, power, eternality. In his presence, none of us is worthy. And you can see that this criminal next to Jesus, gets this. He goes, in the presence of Jesus' greatness, I'm nothing. In the presence of Jesus' purity, I'm impure. In the presence of Jesus' humility, I'm selfish. In the presence of Jesus' holiness, I'm dirty. And he admits it. And here's my second question. Have you? admitted your unworthiness in His presence. I don't mean compared to your neighbour, I don't mean compared to the person sitting next to you, I don't mean compared to even your cool preacher, this one. Because we have very low bars, I mean compared to Jesus and the standard He set. You say, what standard did he set? Simple. He was asked this a week before he died. What's the standard, Jesus? Here's what he said Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, simple love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. There you go. That's it. That's the gold standard. How are you doing compared to that? The thing about this statement from Jesus a week before his death is, I reckon, it is aimed at both the religious hypocrite and the moral atheist. Because what's the religious hypocrite? Someone who loves God but not people. Have you ever met someone like that? Like they're all into worshipping the Lord, but as soon as they get out there and they interact with like human beings, different story. And we say that is ugly. Rightly so. It fails the gold standard. But the opposite is the same. The moral atheist has the audacity to say that they are moral toward people and they reject God, the source of everything. If one is ugly, how can its mirror opposite be any different? Jesus' gold standard is aimed at the religious hypocrite and the moral agnostic or atheist the same. And compared to his gold standard, friends, every one of us is unworthy. Have you admitted it? Third and final part of the safety check flows right out of this sense of unworthiness. It's forgiveness. I love these words. Then he said, this is the criminal over here. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Don't you love the simplicity and humility of it? There's no deep theology. There's no sort of show or pretense. There is just, can you see this face, Lord? Will you remember this face? When you rule everything and it is clear that you are the universe's Lord, is there a place for me? He's asking for forgiveness, right? I have no idea how he worked out this was even plausible. He's just admitted he's in the presence of the king of God's kingdom. He's just admitted he's unworthy. And yet he has the, what is it? The courage, the audacity to say, is there a place for me? Had he maybe heard the rumors about the one next to him. The rumors that this Jesus, who on the one hand was a fiery preacher of the judgment of God, was on the other hand known as the friend of sinners. Known for sitting down at the dinner table with sinners. You know this beautiful passage in Luke's gospel that says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus was able to do something that modern Christians have found very difficult to do. Flex two muscles at the same time. The muscle of moral conviction and the muscle of mercy to the immoral. The church, the church kind of flexes one muscle or the other builds up one muscle or the other, and is lopsided as a result. You get the kind of loose, liberal, lefty church who's all into, you know, acceptance and, and love and, you know, just, just, just as you are. Don't change. Jesus loves you. It's gorgeous. You know? Do you have any of those churches in America? And then you got the fiery, you know, you're a sinner. We don't want to, you know, have anything to do with you. I had someone recently in America ask me, whether it would be wrong to have their non-Christian uh, family members to Thanksgiving meal because they cuss, which I think means swear, right? Okay, I just went along with it, right? <laughs> I said, what? She, she honestly thought maybe it was wrong to have them in the house because they'd be a bad... I'm going, what? Didn't Jesus eat meals with the sinners? Jesus was not a lopsided Christian. He somehow was able to hold it all together, preach the judgment of God, call people to account, tell them that they're sinners, and then sit down at the table of friendship with them and love them and offer the mercy of God. We've got to recover that one. It's the genius of Jesus. It should be the genius of the church. Is that why this criminal takes his chance i've heard maybe that he he sits down and has meals with sinners maybe i can get into his kingdom after all and jesus says i tell you the truth today you'll be with me in paradise is this not overwhelming total forgiveness because the guy didn't ask to be with him in paradise. He just said, remember this face when you come back and everyone knows you're king. He, it's like he's saying, I have a little corner of the kingdom. You know, I'll just be out there, you know, I'll be clearing up the rubbish of the kingdom. That's cool. I just want a little place. And Jesus says, no, you know what? You're going to be with me. With me. <laughs> Forgiveness. Not because the criminal could do anything to earn it. Of course not, he's he's about to die. And here we are at the unique point of Christianity. I have have deep respect for other religious traditions. In fact, I taught world religions at my, my university for several years. So I get them, I can appreciate them to a degree, but you know what? There is one profound difference, there are several, but here's the most profound difference between Christianity and all of the world faiths. In Christianity, salvation is free. And if you're getting used to that, because you're an evangelical American, wake up. Wake up. Because this is unique. This is precious. You don't deserve it every other faith, you earn it. In Hinduism, what you do for the gods determines the degree to which they give you good karma and improve your reincarnation until maybe, maybe, you'll achieve the ultimate prize. In Buddhism, the degree to which you follow the buddhist path will determine your outcome in islam the degree to which you pray and give to the poor will atone for your sins in christianity friends no one atones for your sins but jesus it was now about the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped You know, we have a non-Christian reference to the sun stopped shining at the time of Jesus' death from about the year 50, the Greek writer Thallus. That's just one for the nerds. And the temple curtain was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. In this moment this dark and beautiful moment, Jesus bore the sins of you and me. And I wonder if that criminal next to Jesus, in that dark moment, thought, that was for me. That's how I got forgiveness from Jesus. Forgiveness for me, condemnation for him. Mercy for me, judgment for him. Paradise for me, hell for him. I get it. Do you get it? Never take this for granted, Christians. This is unique. You couldn't have come up this by yourself. That God, the glorious, the one in whose presence we are nothing and deserving of judgment and rightly fearful enters into the world as Jesus, bears the judgment we deserve so we could be forgiven through His atonement. So that anyone who comes to Him
0: recognizes
1: His greatness, admits their unworthiness, asks for forgiveness, will be forgiven. Have you done it? And if you haven't, will you pray with me this prayer as I close? And are we moving into communion, Troy? Let me pray a prayer we say in my tradition every week before communion. You may want to echo it in your heart. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. But in your manifold and great mercies, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat by faith the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus, and to drink by faith his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us.